Welcome to the Cascadian Prophets Podcast, a production of the Cascadia Poetics Lab, empowering people to practice poetry and deepen connections to place, self, and the present moment. It must be a fascinating life to never have a normal job, to go on bike trips over thousands of miles long, to travel to Antarctica, live in seclusion for half a year, working on your own story in graphic novel form, outlining much of one's own personal mythology and narrating it and illustrating it. This is part of the story of Feeding Ghosts by Tessa Hulse, in which she delves into her matrilineal history, which includes fact-finding trips to the People's Republic of China and a translation of a book her grandmother wrote. Healing the bloodline may be the main thread, and it is fascinating. Tessa Hulls is a friend of the organization bringing you this interview, having created a lively promotional poster for the 2013 Allen Ginsberg Poetry Marathon. Do you remember that, Tessa? I do. I think that might have been the first time we crossed paths. Yeah, I have it as a, uh, let me see if I have the right screen share here. There's the cover of your new book. And then here's the. (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) Wow. Isn't that something? Wait, that uh yeah, that that takes me back to a different chapter of my life in which um everyone I knew was a poet. I was kind of hiding out in poetry land for a while and hilariously that was my gateway drug to comics. I don't know if you knew that, Paul, but uh there's so many parallels between the medium and so hanging out with people who were fascinated by the structural mechanics of using language to negotiate time across a page that's kind of what sent me off on this form. That's amazing. So poets have done some good in the world is what you're saying. (laughs) Oh, plenty. Well, well, and the reason I ended up so, (laughs) okay, I haven't actually talked about this yet. So the backstory here is that um, long, long ago before we met, I went through an inter-art world breakup with a a fellow genre hopper who worked in every medium. And so I couldn't avoid my ex. And I was like, God damn it. Where can I still be around people who make things without constantly having to run into this person? And so I thought, poetry, that is one that can just be mine. And so, uh, yeah, I was like basically a a refugee visual artist, genre hopper, um, hanging out with poets in the wake of a bad breakup. And um, yeah, it kind of changed my life. Fantastic. Changed mine too, but in a different way. Do you remember when you got the idea to write a book like this? Yeah, yeah. So I don't think that's the right way of putting it. I did not get the idea. There's a a line that Connie Willis says, we're asking writers where they get their ideas. It's like asking Humphrey Bogart and the African Queen, uh, where do you get your leeches? And so there was a very distinct moment when I knew I had to do this. And I was on one of my aforementioned, you know, multi-thousand mile bike rides and was a couple months past my 30th birthday, had spent my 20s just running from my family ghosts and they finally caught me when I was on a six-week solo bike trip in Mexico and realized that I had gotten to a place in my life where I was I had the skills and I had the tenacity to survive finally facing my family history so I was biking alone up a mountain and my ghost told me someone has to feed the ghosts and then I spent the next decade of my life following that command (laughs) Yeah. Hungry ghosts is a phrase that Buddhists might know. This person that's overtaken with desires and addictions and what have you, but you use it in a slightly different way. Yeah. I mean, it's related certainly to that concept, but in Chinese culture, you know, the hungry ghost, it's, it's basically a spirit that can't be at rest. 
because it, it didn't accomplish what it needed to on its time on earth. And so the living family members will give literal offerings to those ghosts. They'll leave them food. And, um, you know, in, in Chinese culture in general, the notion of ancestor worship, there's a much more tangible connection there. And so you burn paper offerings to give to your ancestors in the afterlife, like even like paper cars, paper cell phones, stuff like that. So for me, I think Hungry Ghost, it, it was very literal. I, I knew that my grandmother's story had never been finished and that no one in my matrilineal family would be able to find peace until I brought that that lack of closure to an end and told her story. You know, I interviewed Eric Drucker and I've seen a lot of graphic novels. My kid is into them. But I've never seen a graphic memoir necessarily. I mean, this is, I mean, you're telling your life story here. Is there a book that you saw that you thought, I can do something like that? Or is this something that just came to you in a more organic way? Well, I think Mouse is the most obvious, even down to the narrative device of when I revisited it. You know, I think like a lot of a lot of people my age, I'm, in, I'm almost 40, um, Mouse was the first graphic novel that I read. And some instinct in me knew to not reread it until I was mostly done with this book because I had forgotten the specifics. In Mouse, you have a son following his father around with a notebook, trying to uncover the story of the generation before. And I had completely forgotten that narrative device from Mouse, where it's breaking the fourth wall. And it's really the story of Art Spiegelman coming to terms with having to write this book. So that's definitely the most pertinent touchstone. Um, and then Alison Bechtel's Fun Home was also another huge influence. Uh, Craig Thompson's Blankets. And there are a bunch of other graphic novels. Um, David B.'s Epileptic, Everything by Joe Sacco, Ellen Forney and Marbles and kind of confronting mental illness that way. So I, I do think that there are a lot of models to follow. And, and Persepolis, of course, that's another one that's uh, that's so similar. I almost forgot to mention it. <laughs> All a blank slate to me, to be honest with you. This is not my thing, but I find I found your book quite compelling and read it. Uh, I wouldn't say read it easily. I was about to say read it easily, but I don't think it's an easy read. But it certainly is compelling. Um, in, in many ways, starts with your grandmother. You describe your grandma as a bold young journalist reporting from the front lines of China's civil war and then escaping communism, which is uh, is one of the main threads in more ways than one, main threads of uh, the, the difficulties uh, that your family has faced in terms of mental health. So maybe you can talk about your grandmother. Yeah, so my grandmother, Sun Yi, was a journalist and she was living in Shanghai when the communists came to power. And so the book opens in 1949, basically as this, this history is unfolding around her. And she kept writing as essentially anybody with the resources to get out of the city did before the communists came, but she chose to stay. Um, and she ended up staying because she had a fling with a Swiss diplomat and so um, ended up getting pregnant and abandoned. Uh, and that's another thread that kind of pops up in the story is, you know, my mom never met her father. He was never in the picture, but the fact that he was white had a huge downstream influence on really the the trajectory of my mother's life there were certain benefits that came from that i mean in this country you know it's a struggle uh, in many ways although now things are beginning to change a little bit but uh, elsewhere hong kong for instance 
um, can come in handy. Yeah, definitely. Um, learning about the colonial structures of Hong Kong and, and even the fact that, well, to, to give a little bit more of the cliff notes. So essentially my, my grandmother was labeled a political dissident because she had been writing for pro-nationalist newspapers. And so she would be arrested and, and held for days and, and disappeared for lengths of time um, when my mom was a child. And eventually she was able to get the two of them out and they fled to Hong Kong beneath the false bottom of a fishing boat. And so at that point, China was sealed off behind what's known as the bamboo curtain. So China had completely closed off all flow of information. There, the press no longer existed as anything other than a political mouthpiece for the Communist Party. And so there was this huge, huge, huge appetite for information about what was actually happening back on the mainland. So once my grandma arrived in Hong Kong and had been a journalist, she wrote this memoir that became an overnight bestseller that was talking about these eight years of, of being put through communist persecution. And once that um, that book was published, obviously not in China, but uh, yeah, Hong Kong and Taiwan. And then I discovered that there were copies in I think about 25 libraries all over the world. Um, my grandma used the money from that to put my mom into a colonial boarding school. And then my grandma had a mental breakdown and ended up institutionalized. Um, so basically my mom was raised by this colonial boarding school. And what I later learned through research is, you know, she and my mother came to China during a time when the social fabric was really overburdened. And so most people had no access to housing or education. And for my mom to have been accepted to basically Hong Kong's most elite school, um, in diving through archives and records and piecing this together, I learned that it was because it was actually a Eurasian orphanage in the past. And that was because um, it's like so hard to concisely explain, but essentially there was an entire population of Chinese women who would end up becoming the mistresses of all of these European men who were in Hong Kong to make money. And so those men would invariably go back to their home countries, leaving these mixed race bastard children um, who didn't have resources because all of the money had been tied to the fathers. And because the Hong Kong Eurasian population actually had a lot of political and economic power because they were the go-betweens between the Chinese labor force and the white businessmen um, basically making money off this colony, uh, you had a bunch of wealthy male Eurasians who were like, well, we've got to do something about all of these fatherless bastards. And they would set up funds to pay for their education at the school that my mother ended up going to. So the long roundabout thread of that is the only reason my mom learned English, which was what enabled her to eventually come to the U.S. for college, is because she was taken in to an elite school because she was the abandoned offspring of an unknown white father. So she never met him, but he changed her life. And that's something. I mean, it's just one fascinating story after another. Another fascinating story is um, finding your grandmother's book and commissioning it to be translated so that you could read it because your Chinese at the time was not so good. I suspect a little better now, but maybe not fluent. Maybe you could talk oh. about those two things. <laughs> oh, you're laughing. <laughs> no, not oh even gosh, close, nowhere so. near no. fluent, yeah. nowhere near. And, and you know, I, I will never be able to read Chinese beyond um, the basic character recognition. You know, it's, it's funny because I, 
I generally am someone who picks things up pretty quickly, but for whatever reason, Chinese is, it's like my, um, my intellectual kryptonite. And I think I'm, I'm literally a little bit tone deaf. And so for me, a tonal language is, is challenging. So I've, I do speak some Mandarin now and I can read a little bit, but I would never be able to read something with the complexity of my grandma's book. Um, yeah. So growing up, I, I knew that my grandma had written a memoir and I may have vaguely known that my mom had a copy of it, but as for what was inside of it, I, I didn't have the context to really understand what it meant that my grandma had written a memoir that was criticizing the communist party. And it, it really wasn't until I started doing the research for this book that I understood the magnitude of the stand that she had chosen to take. Um, because not only could speaking up against the communist party blacklist you, it could take your whole family down with you. And so essentially my grandmother had to permanently sever ties with her family by writing this book because to do anything else would have put them in danger. Yeah, and some of the uh, treatment she got from the communist party you mention in the book and it's terrific what and, and you know we live in a time that has political divisions that seem to be uh, uh that potent but you know, can it can it happen here i don't know but uh she's she went through hell yeah yeah i mean she they, they broke her mind um essentially communist era thought reform it would just subject people to constant interrogation where you would write forced confessions and then what you wrote would be compared to everything that the communists knew from spying on you. And you would have to do it over and over and over again until you really just couldn't recognize reality anymore. And, and that was essentially the state that my grandmother fell into and was never truly able to leave. And she lived the rest of her life trying to rewrite that story, trying to write it, to, trying to get it right. Uh, you know, with the freedom to write whatever she wanted to, but by then her mind was not an ally in that effort. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's a good way of putting it. But she, I mean, she literally just kept rewriting the past. That's not some sort of metaphor. She sat at the desk rewriting her own past for the rest of her life. At a certain point, you write that you just wanted this quest to soften you. Can you elaborate on that? Did it soften you? Are you softened? Have you been softened? Uh, yeah, against my will. Like maybe in the way that that pounding something with a meat tenderizer does soften it by breaking down the muscle fibers. Um, no, I mean you you're catching me still in a, a state of raw burnout from having done this, and um, and honestly feeling a lot of really conflicted things around launch because I think for me this book held a lot of grief and it did not feel cathartic to write. It felt necessary it felt like something i owed my family and my ghosts and it felt like something i would not have for me it was never a choice i had i had to do this and for better or for worse i did access an emotional place within myself that i really couldn't have before and it, it did soften me and my mother into a relationship that's completely unrecognizable so in terms of what I wanted out of this book, which was to heal that one very painful, contentious relationship, I accomplished that years ago. And so I, I think that's part of why um, why it actually going out in the world and the question of audience and reception. I'm finding that I am somewhere between indifferent and 
uh, actively repulsed by that side because it wasn't why I did this. Yeah, there, there's a line in it uh, about um, uh, I grew up fighting desperately for the custody of my own mind is the line that you use. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a worthwhile effort. Did that was you were you obviously seem to have got gotten some success with that quest. Yeah, well, you know, I, I talk in the book about becoming a cowboy, which is the metaphor that I use to really examine the question of what is the myth that America tells about itself and, and what is this myth of hyper independence and the open open frontier. And I think for my 20s, up until I started this book, I was really doubling down on a life where I was beholden to nothing. And it was very much a knee-jerk reaction against this set of Chinese cultural values of duty and loyalty. And I, I just felt so trapped by, by this darkness that had consumed two generations in my family and that I felt was going to consume me if I didn't get away from it. So in some ways, I think fighting for the custody of my own mind, as you put it, I succeeded slightly too well. Um, and I did manage to create a life that was pretty unmoored from any of the normal constraints that people are privy to and realized that it was going to break me with loneliness. <laughs> so in some ways, I think this book has been an attempt to undo some of that hyper-independence. Yeah, the phrase you use on page 13 is the feral romance of the Wild West. Yep, yeah. sure do you love it. <laughs> yeah, you got to. I mean, all the things that, that you've done, it's pretty remarkable. Living in Alaska, living in Antarctica, um, stunning. I mean, it, it takes a lot of it takes a lot of courage and nerve to do that. Where do you think that could, well, I mean, you know, your story tells it. Uh, your mom and your grandmother went through some pretty serious shit. So maybe it's in the bloodline. Where do you think the courage comes from? I mean, for me, it's not a matter of courage. It's it's just a thirst. It's a call I hear, and you know, there's there's um there's a chapter in the Wind in the Willows. It's called Wayfarers All, I believe. It's chapter nine, and there's this conversation between these swallows, um, and they're talking to I believe it's Ratty, and they're trying to explain the pull to migrate and go south, and how um they need to have this journey and they need to go somewhere else for this length of time and and ratty's trying to say but it's so nice here like you have friends you have people who miss you why why do you have to leave and the swallows are trying to explain that it's not that we, we don't love this place like the season will come and it will be time to return but the the call to go is in our bones and one of the sparrows talks about how one year he tried to ignore it and he stayed as the weather got cold and there was nothing to eat and he found himself unable to survive and eventually had to just take off, you know, much later than usual. And I think for me, there have been times, um, the making of this book being one of them where I haven't been able to indulge or listen to that part of me that needs to go be in remote places for whole seasons. And I get cripplingly depressed and I stop being able to recognize myself. So for me, it doesn't take courage at all. Um, yeah, that question just does not compute. It's like, it's it's just something that I hear every moment of every day of my life. And when it's time to go, I got to go. No. Well, page 39, you tell a story about Japanese troops who had torn through uh, everyone's possessions except your families 
And that's because of having Japanese books in the library. I'd love to screen share on that particular page. So if I if I do the shared screen and then uh, pull up not the not the marathon poster, but uh, <laughs> I believe it's page thirty nine. So here it is, and maybe we can bump it up a little bit so we can see. And there was a poem written. So maybe you can tell us that story. Yeah. So. Um... My family had to to flee Suzhou, which is where they lived um, during the Sino-Japanese War. And my great-grandfather had been a chicken farmer, but he was a very educated man. And, and he was definitely somebody who, who liked to learn as much as he could on any topic. And so he had a bunch of books on Japanese farming techniques and some other Japanese literature. And so when my family returned after hiding while the troops passed through, um, all of the neighbors' homes had been ransacked and their their possessions destroyed. But the Japanese commander had written a poem in front of their house that said these people were friends of, of Japan and that they, they valued their books and their literature. And so their stuff was not to be harmed. A poem of all things. Stunning. I mean, that's just that's just a, an amazing story how that happens. Uh, how how these blessings happen to happen. Um, there are there's a graphic touch to this which you know one can't explain uh, there's a, a particular image of pinball game and there are other i don't know you could call them surreal touches or what have you but uh, i'd like to pull that up too i think it's page 157 let me see if i'm, if I'm right here 157 and uh, yeah that's that's where it is so let me do the share screen and uh, you could talk about how how the story as a narrative in words and the story in graphic form and how things like pinball games come up. I mean, this is, this is to me fascinating. So let's see, there we go. That's the one right there. Yeah. I mean, I think that's just always how my mind has worked. I've always been equal parts, visual artist and writer. And for whatever reason, I, I, I mean, other people have told me I, I just have a knack for unexpected analogies and metaphors. And so that's why I chose to do this book as a graphic novel was because it was the only way that I thought I could really convey the density of information and in, without it getting bogged down in the minutia. So in this scene, it's it's essentially giving the Cliff Notes overview of the trajectory of what happened to my family and why they had to sever ties and how my mom ended up with perfect high queen's english which got her to the u.s all because of my grandfather so that long rambling story i told you earlier in the interview well here's how i can show it in one panel because i can draw a pinball machine and then you immediately get the sort of ricocheting randomness of this and how it all occupies this same space but it could have gone so many other ways if it had just bounced slightly differently fantastic i love that of course i'm a pinball fan anyway so i'm privy to liking things like that um oh what's what's your favorite pinball game um the adams family is one <laughs> uh gophers is another from high school it was eight ball and so uh you know i wasn't good as the best players in high school but i can get in front of a pinball game and go on a run uh pretty well but go, the gophers <laughs> sort of a take on <laughs> caddyshack have you ever played that game I haven't played Gophers, but I, I there was a chapter in my life where I played a fair amount of Adams Family pinball at the college in. Adams Family, absolutely. It was 
on one of your uh, sojourns that you discovered your graphic novel skills in Antarctica. Not everybody can say shit like that. But um, there you are under a bed in Antarctica inventing a uh, or, or adapting a form for uh, your situation and for your specific creativity. Can you t tell that story? Yeah, so <laughs> every I think every creative has to have some way they actually pay the bills. And for myself, I accidentally became a chef, which happened by way of playing college rugby and equally accidentally running a freelance donation-based pie catering company. This is just how I move through the world. I, I swear it all makes sense. But um, anyways, I, uh, I found myself cooking at McMurdo, the science research station down in Antarctica. And when you're down there, you work six days a week, you work 10 hour days. And so you don't have a lot of free time. And I lived in a room with uh, four other people and someone was always sleeping because someone worked night shift. So uh, I needed a place to work and I needed a medium that I could do quickly. So I ended up making a little studio under my my lofted bed. Well, it wasn't actually lofted. It was maybe like, I don't know, uh, two and a half feet of, off the floor. So I couldn't sit up straight, but I could army crawl on my stomach and I cut it, I, blanketed it off and put cardboard up and um yeah oh exactly that that's what i did that's better you can just show the picture yeah if you want to go up slightly so people can see the the cardboard <laughs> barricades um yeah so that's when i started drawing comics because antarctica was just the most fascinating place i had ever been because on the one hand you have all of these like curious explorers who obviously want some way to access being at the bottom of the world and then you have people for whom it's just a seasonal contract job so they're like getting off work and sitting in their rooms, drinking beer and watching TV, just completely indifferent to the fact that they happen to be in Antarctica. Um, and those collisions of worlds, plus the fact that people have to make their own fun down there. So there's just so many uh, bands and costume parties and just really creative things. And um, yeah, I started drawing comics as a way to record some of that. Being a DJ as part of that experience. Yeah, yeah, poor life decisions. Uh, Ice 104.5. Uh, I loved it. That also really changed my relationship to music. You know, I, I always loved music, but there was this um, this broom closet sized room down there where back when vinyl was the main way that people listened to music, um, military bases would have these vinyl collections. And as they became obsolete, they were destroyed in other places and decommissioned. And I've never fact-checked this, and I, I kind of don't want to, because if it's not true, I don't want it taken away from me. But the rumor is the reason that the one in Antarctica survived is that it was too expensive to ship them all back and decommission it with the proper military protocol. So there's 20,000 records down there, and um, they're all made for Armed Forces Radio and Television, so that means they don't have any of the album art, and they're all made specially pressed to be used on on military bases because that was of course the first presence in antarctica because that's usually what happens it's like war or research extraction that causes government to first get to remote places um but yeah anyone could volunteer to be a dj and i would uh, do a two-hour show every sunday and i would pick a theme every week and just go vinyl diving and that's also where i ended up falling in love with 1940s and 50s high lonesome cowboy ballads and did they have techniques, turntables, and were you able to learn how to do slip cues, or is that getting a little too? <laughs> no, no. I mean, we we had a we had a mixer, and um, but there, yeah, it wasn't wasn't scratching or anything like that. 
That's fantastic. You know, because that's when I came up in radio, it was techniques, turntables. If you turned, if you held the, you turned the, the, the turntable on, but held it with your thumb, when something ended with a cold ending like that, you could just let go of your thumb and boom, you'd have the, or, you know, you'd run a real tight board. So that's what I grew up when I was in radio starting in the, in the very, starting in 1980. So learning how to do slip cues and that kind of thing. And then of course, we also edited actual reel-to-reel tape with grease pencils and what have you. And I fought going digital for a long time and it's so much easier. It's crazy, which of course, the process of creating podcasts, so digital. Um, there are so many different little things and I'd love to get your comments on them. It might fe- seem like skipping around, but I'm trying to go basically from beginning to end of the book. And um, there's a couple of things I wrote down, page 170, Amelie, which is a movie that I went to see with my daughter. And the fact that it has mythic connotations for you um, is something worth talking about, I think. And it's on, well, actually, we're going back to page 170 on this because because of uh, the Antarctica insertion. But Amelie is... uh, is is the movie I'm talking about. And I'll share a screen so we can see your rendering of that. Yeah, okay. so I went to go... Oh. <laughs> yeah, tell <laughs> Did us. Did you have another? Uh, yeah, well, I, I went to go see that movie in high school and remember feeling just this enormous level of kinship because, um, you know, my, my mom was deeply shaped by the fact that her mother had lost her mind. And my mother was the caretaker for her mother for pretty much her entire life. And so my mom associated the fact that my grandmother had had a mental breakdown with the fact that she had been a writer and the creative temperament. Um, And so for better or for worse, it was clear from day one that I was not only a writer, but an artist and that words and images were going to be the guiding force in my life. I, I was one of those kids where there's just, there's nothing else I ever could have been. And because of that, my mom was so terrified that I contained some seed of her grandmother's mental illness. And so from a deeply well-intentioned place, she tried to, to find whatever that frightening seed was and identify it and treat it before it could manifest. And that took the form of my mom treating me as though I, I was mentally ill and, um, it was complicated and and damaging. And so in Amelie, the plot there is, um, you know, a, a, a little girl loses her mother in an accident and she's left to be raised by her father, who's a physician, and he doesn't know how to interact with his daughter. And so he, he only touches her once a year and that's when he gives her a physical checkup. And so her heart races because it's this moment of normalcy and closeness. And so he thinks that she has a heart condition and therefore she is kept away from the world. She's not allowed to have friends. She's not allowed to to venture out. She's protected in this really heartbreaking isolation. And so she turns inward and just creates a world in her own imagination to live within because she didn't have access to any other world. And that is effectively what happened in my own family is I had to create a world in my mind because my mother from great love was keeping me from the ability to actually make my way in the real world. You say in the book that wilderness saved your life. So that was part of your survival strategy. Talk to us about that. 
Yeah. So I grew up in a town of 350 and it, it happened to be right next to National Seashore. And there is a huge amount of, of um, agricultural land trust there. So I could just wander out in the hills and climb trees uh, endlessly. And I didn't realize how spoiled I was by that until I left. But um, yeah, I grew up really comfortable being alone and remember demanding my own library card probably when I was four. Um, and to me, just being outside with a book and being comfortable walking through the woods all day was was just a really ingrained part of my childhood and, and something that I never lost. Fascinating. And then, of course, all this travel to uh, your ancestral homeland, also to Hong Kong, um, reveals some things that uh, I've, I've never heard of. The Legion of Discarded Deities is something that's just fascinating. And the fact that you rendered it, too. You see if I can pull that up real quick. Um, yeah, I, I can give the backstory on that one. And uh, well, I'm not sure it has a, a formal name. I feel like the way that you said it implies that this is like, you go there and there's a plaque or something. But um, no, it's it's a much sweeter, softer story than that. Where Basically, a retired old man, um, he started collecting these statues of broken gods, because usually, they would just be thrown away. And so he, um, he started just installing them on the hillside behind this senior community so you take a bus and you go down some non-distinct concrete stairs and past a tall sky rise that looks like any other building in hong kong and you suddenly just see this hillside of tens of thousands of these statues of broken gods because he's been doing it for years and they're so densely packed together that there's basically no visible ground that's not covered in in some broken god and i, I just thought that that was the most tender beautiful thing and it, it really resonated with me as being what I was trying to do in this book was to take these broken pieces and place them back together in a context where they not only made sense but could be cherished and you could see the beauty in them yeah. another thing you write in the book is that you don't feel Chinese enough to tell this story um, that's not even halfway through the book um, at the end, there's feels like some resolution. Uh, would you write that again? Do you feel Chinese enough now or still not Chinese enough? Okay, how am I going to answer that? that? It's a complicated question. Um, part of the reason I felt such a compulsive due diligence to get the history as right as possible and to really go overboard on educating myself for the research was because I am being given this large platform to teach about a lot of Chinese history that's not broadly known in the US. And as somebody who is only a quarter Chinese, if we're going by blood quorum, and you know, as it, I put in the book, it's like depending on context, people uh, have wildly different opinions of the extent to which I do or do not look Asian. But you know, in a lot of circumstances, I very much just could pass. And there is that part of me that feels that the privileges that I carry from the way that I have access to whiteness does make me feel um, a deep sense of responsibility to doing everything that I can to do right by the story that I'm telling. So I do think I would write that again, because questioning that is something that I think I will always do and, and should always do not in a like hair shirt self flagellation way. But when you're given a platform when you've experienced a lot less prejudice than many of the other people who have been affected by this history, I definitely think that's a consideration that I should never lose track of. Yeah. There's um, 
something later in the book that is uh, well. Let me just pull up, pull it up, and you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. It's a phrase in Chinese with a couple of different characters, and I think it goes right to the heart of you know the, the narrative here. The phrase "zuojia," "zuojia." How do you? Zuojia. Zuojia. So it um yeah it means writer and the the, the characters. So a lot of um, a lot of Chinese are compound words like this, where you combine single characters and then they they take on a combined meaning. And so the first character Zuo is um, to make, and the second character Jia is um, family or home. So to be a writer is literally to make family or home. And um, I learned that and just yeah really felt like okay this this is my role. This is what I've been doing. And I'm glad that I didn't actually learn uh, that those were the characters for writer until pretty late into this process. Um, Cause I, I think sometimes I prefer it when I don't know at the outset what exactly I'm trying to do and then later find something that sort of confirms or helps put into language um, what has been a more somatic or uh, intuitive feeling. Yeah, it seems seems in many ways all writers are trying to do that it makes a lot of sense having that phrase be what it means to be a writer or or the description of writer and then we think that's the destination but then some of the horrors that your grandmother witnessed which most certainly must be at the core of uh that and the and the abuse of the communist government but also the just the horrific things she witnessed as a as a very young girl I mean, that's going to stop someone from getting home if they have to endure that. Understanding that, you know, my father losing his two older brothers to diphtheria when he was nine years old, they both died within five weeks of each other. When I can put myself in his shoes, it gives me so much compassion and love for him that it makes it easy to, not easy, it makes it easier to swallow the times where he was less than skillful. So did you have a similar experience with that, having compassion for your grandmother? after learning the depth of what she had to deal with? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I, I really didn't know anything about her past until I started this book because there, there was no way for me to access it because she didn't really speak English and was also very heavily medicated on antipsychotics the whole time that I knew her. And she lived with us, just to clarify. So I, I grew up with her in my family home. Um, and at the end of the day, having really just followed in her footsteps for the better part of a decade trying to understand I deliberately don't name any of her diagnoses in the book because where I've come to rest is that I don't think she actually was mentally ill I think she had untreated PTSD and was brought to a set of circumstances where there was really no no place for her to belong and no ability to have the the contact and interaction that makes a human being feel held. And I feel deep sadness over what her life was. And I do feel a much, much, much deeper compassion, not just for her, but, but for my mother. Um, and I, I would say that understanding is really what, what is the most radical and most revelatory because with my grandmother, it's, it's this remove, you know, she died in 2012, but with my mom, I, I grew up shaped by her pain. And when I finally understood the topography that had formed it, I just felt so much tenderness for her. I felt tenderness for my mother as a child. 
And it really has transformed our relationship. How's that going now? Um, well, <laughs> there's a monkey wrench, which is that my mom has dementia. And so the timing on that, um, she's kind of gone into a bit of a tailspin with the development of her Alzheimer's as this book is going out into the world. And I do think that's part of why I've found the emotional roller coaster around book launch to be so fraught and painful is that um, my mother is losing her story just as ours is making a public debut. You know, I've known of your exploits, I don't know, maybe following them, following them through social media, but, and so I know that you are a very courageous person. You don't call yourself that necessarily, but I can see the courage in it and the extent of the research that's gone into this and the extent of the depth of telling the story is stunning. I mean, this is a life's work and hopefully you have a long life to write other things uh, after this. I hope that's the case. This is a very compelling story told expertly in a very unique way. And I'm really honored to be able to have this moment with you and ask these questions that I find interesting and that I hope listeners will find interesting. So thank you for what you do and thank you for allowing me an inside look at what's going on and what you did. Yeah, well, thank you so much. And I, I appreciate the very close reading. I mean, I, I love it when somebody's got like specific page numbers. Um, yeah, I, I really appreciate you making this space and spending time with my family's story. The book is Feeding Ghosts, a graphic memoir, and our guest has been Tessa Holmes. Cascadian Profit supporters include Diana Elser, a sponsorship dedicated to her parents, whose practicality, humor, and love of family life reflected their experience in and love for the Missouri Breaks and Ruby Valley, Montana landscapes that define their childhoods. And Steinbrook Native Gallery, located near Pike Place Market in downtown Seattle, featuring fine art of the Northwest Coast from emerging and established artists. A link to their site at CascadianProfits.org. Cascadian Profits is a project of the Cascadia Poetics Lab in Seattle, Washington. Check us out online at cascadiapoeticslab.org.